All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, I'm going to just jump right into today's sermon. We are continuing our study through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Thus far, we have been on a long road trip together. Jesus has taken his disciples all over Israel, and now he has set his gaze on Jerusalem, and he is entering into Jerusalem uh, the Gospel of Mark has an interesting shape. The whole first part is about the, uh, it covers the, the life and ministry of Jesus for about three years. And then this, from uh, chapter 11 all the way through 16, it covers just a seven-day span. And so Mark really zooms in to these critical elements. Um, in the Christian calendar, this would be Palm Sunday. But uh, you'll see that it has some Christmas themes to it. Uh, Jesus is arriving. The word Advent just means arrival. So Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to read Mark chapter 11, 1 through uh, 11, and then we're going to pray. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, or Beit Fage, the house of the early fig, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you, or what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Then many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Lord Jesus, your word is life. It is light. It is our sustenance. These words, Lord, were preserved not so that we could have a better life, but so that we could be shaped, transformed into the image of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I have asked you that you be seen today. I have asked you that you reveal your glory today. I have asked you that you make yourself known to the people here and the people watching online. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. Amen. 
When I was about eighth grade, about 13 years old, I lived in a little town called Albany, Georgia. It's a town actually about the size of Santa Barbara. We had been in ministry for most of my life, and my dad actually stepped away for a season, and he had a fantastic job, and we got a Nintendo, we got a basketball goal, and we lived in a neighborhood, not in a parsonage, for the first time. This was an amazing neighborhood, tons of friends, but there was one kid by the name of John Watkins. He was the neighborhood bully. And anytime we would play uh, kick the can or um, hide and go seek or flag football or basketball, John would always cheat. He would always throw an elbow. He would always trip people up. And there was something going on in John's life. We didn't know, but he was just mean. He was just a mean son of a gun. And nobody ever stood up to John. John bullied kids that were smaller than him, and he could run faster than the kids that were bigger than him. And so somehow he always got away with his bullying. One day, my little brother John and I were playing backyard football, two-touch football against John Watkins and my friend Ryan Wood. And we were thumping them. Both of the guys were older than us, and we should not have been winning. And I could just see the seething anger in John Watkins. John was a little shorter, but he was a stocky kid. And every time he would go out for a pass, he would come up to my brother and he would cut and pivot. And just as he did, boom, elbow across the throat of my brother. I didn't see this happening. My brother was toughing it out, but I didn't like it. I didn't like it when he was coming back. He was like, man, something's going on with John. Finally, I saw it and I called it out. I said, you do that again, and we're going, to, we're going to fight. And so John stopped for a little bit. Finally, we scored the game-winning touchdown. John took the ball and threw it and hit my brother in the face. I didn't think. I snapped. I stood up for all the little kids in our neighborhood. This was a revolution. I was going to take on John Watkins. I started, I did what my dad did, told me to do, which I don't tell my sons to do, by the way, so you don't have to worry. He said, if there's a bully, just punch him in the face as hard as you possibly can, and he will leave you alone. In fact, hit him right in the nose. And so that's what I did, repeatedly. Now, John, like I said, was a bully. Everybody was afraid he was a tough guy, and he did fight back. He bit me in the leg and pulled my hair and screamed like a little girl. The revolution had begun. People weren't afraid of John Watkins anymore. But somehow something didn't settle inside me. So I, I walked inside and broke down crying because I knew that something was just not right. I had enacted violence upon another person. And yeah, it seemed like justice was served, but this was not the revolution that I had hoped for. Jesus had revolutionary people on, in his crew. He had revolutionary disciples. Some were zealots. Some were tax collectors. They followed Jesus for one reason or the other, but all of them, one of the things they all had in common was that they wanted to be a part of the revolution against Rome, the revolution against tyranny, and for some, 
the ennui of having and of consumption had so settled in, they knew that it almost worked but didn't work. They wanted to be a part of the revolution. Jesus had begun to change his behavior. For the entire duration of the book of Mark, Jesus had eschewed fame. People had tried to make him king, and he didn't want to do it. He had healed people and told them, don't tell people about it. But for the first time, Jesus is going public, but going public in the most radical of ways, in a way that captures the imagination of his disciples. Now, Jesus had something in mind for his disciples that I want to tell you that I have in mind for us as a church. Joseph and I and the lead team here have a very strong conviction about you, and that is this. You have a destiny. Your destiny is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. It's more than just believing in Jesus. It's more than just knowing a few scriptures. It's more than being a good person. Your destiny is to be radically different than your family of origin. Your destiny is to be radically different than your culture. Your destiny is to be radically different than all of the alternative stories on offer that tell you what the good life is. Your destiny is to be transformed into this kind of Jesus, the radical revolutionary. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures. Consider Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 3. Romans 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. But Jesus himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the famous verse. But the one that's after may be the most important verse in your walk with Jesus. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 3, 8 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into the image, into his image, into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. Peter later says, be Jesus says, be holy as I am holy in 2 Peter. There's a way of life that we're called to that's radically different. There's a revolution connected to this. Jesus is now turning toward Jerusalem, representing his kingship. The, the name of this series is Jesus is King. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of revolutionary is he? And Jesus looks at his disciples and he's showing them, I want to show you the kind of revolution you're a part of. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is a non-anxious revolutionary. A non-anxious 
revolutionary. Many of, you are, many of you are familiar with the term non-anxious presence, but those who aren't, it comes from Dr. Friedman, who wrote the book, A Failure of Nerve, and he's, he writes, uh, when I talk about someone who is a non-anxious presence, I mean someone who has clarity about his or her own goals, and therefore someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about. I mean someone who can be separate while still remaining connected and therefore can, can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. Jesus stepped into a narrative of being a king in a non-anxious way. He mapped onto an ancient tradition of being a Davidic king. He's coming into Jerusalem saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but not in the way that you think I am. Let's look at just a couple of ways that Jesus was a non-anxious presence. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. In those three phrases, we see Jesus' non-anxious presence and we see an invitation to a non-anxious kind of revolution. First of all, Jesus does not send them alone. When Jesus invites you to participate in kingdom work, he doesn't send you alone. I think it's no surprise that in 2020 and on into 2021, mental health issues skyrocketed. Why? For, many, for a number of reasons, but one of which was quarantine. People were alone in their thoughts. And the more they stayed alone in their thoughts, the more anxiety grew within them. Jesus gave us community, for, and one of the resources of community is to be able to process the vicissitudes of life, the difficulties of life, the worry of life with someone else, to, to, to enable us with a brother or sister in Christ to not be anxious. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. But how? Well, Jesus sent them by two. This is not the first time. He sent them out into the world, not alone. Secondly, Jesus doesn't ask them to do something they can't do. Jesus doesn't ask them to do something supernatural. What does he say? He says, go to this town, find the colt, untie it, and bring it. Can they do this? Are they capacious enough to do what Jesus told them to do? Yes. God invites us into a partnership with him, but it's always a non-anxious partnership. God wants to take care of the supernatural. He wants to do supernatural things in and through you, but he always asks you to take a step. If you have a supernatural need in your life right now, have you asked God the natural step that you can take? 
Have you asked God the thing that you can do to participate in his kingdom? If worry is, is uh, dominating you, if, if worry has exploited your mental health issues, if, 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 uh, if there's something that is uh, heavy on your heart, have you asked God, what is the natural step that I can take? I can't do everything, but I can do something. The second non-anxious thing Jesus does is he just clears the way. He says, do this. And the brevity of his speech, the economy of words, speaks to the ease with which they can do it. And guess what happens? They do it. The third thing is he gives them his authority. He says, if anyone says to you or anyone questions you, just say the Lord. The Lord told me. And it's, it's like this, this Obi-Wan Kenobi thing. These are not the droids you're looking for. Jesus tells them what to say, and they say it, and it's like this magic thing, and they are able to just take the cult. And it's a cult no one has ever ridden. This is, a, this is royal language. This is something, uh, just like Jesus had a virgin birth, he rides on a virgin cult, so to speak. Uh, the king only rode on horses or or colts that no one else had ever ridden. Jesus invited them into a non-anxious participation in his kingdom. What makes you anxious? We all have something that worries us, troubles us, stresses us out. What's that thing for you? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe there's a financial need, a father wound, Family of origin issues. We're coming to gather with families. Does it make you anxious at all? Are there conversations you're facing or avoiding this coming weekend? Take your anxiety to Jesus. He's inviting you into a kind of non-anxious revolution. The second thing we see is that Jesus was a humble revolutionary. What Jesus does in this narrative maps right onto Old Testament scripture. Look at Psalm 118 for me. See if you can pick out what Jesus does. This is the day the Lord has made. It's the famous verse again preceding the verse we're after. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Be glad in it. Save us or Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what the people said to Jesus. And then in Malachi chapter 3, the last book of our shape of the Old Testament, it says, Behold, I send a messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And then look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Jesus' disciples and the people of Jerusalem would have seen Jesus' actions as the fulfillment of Messianic Scripture. Jesus, like King David, mounted a donkey. And so this son of David is coming into his kingdom. Just like Jehu in 2 Kings liberated and was liberated to lead a revolution, so was Jesus. And just like the prophets had foretold, Jesus is doing it on the back of a humble donkey. Jesus is a humble king. Just like everything else that we've seen with Jesus, he fulfills prophetic words in the most surprising ways. I love stand-up comics. I know a lot of you uh, probably enjoy watching stand-up comedy, but it's part of the art of preaching is to learn from those who stand in front of people and communicate. And so from the earliest days of trying to learn to public speak, I tried to learn the craft of stand-up comedy. Now, I'm not a stand-up comic, but I know how to appreciate stand-up comedy. I have a couple of friends who are professional stand-up comedians, and they talk about how they're the comics that everybody else knows, and then there are the comics comics. They're the comics that everybody else knows, the Jim Gaffigan, the Kevin Hart, the Jerry Seinfelds, but then there are the kinds of comics that the comics all show up for. Norm MacDonald was one such comic. Any, any Norm MacDonald fans in the house? A couple of you, okay. Norm was amazing, and Norm passed away recently, and it was, it was incredible to hear some of the stories that came out from other comics about this hero to the comics. Norm was a kind of a revolutionary comic. The story goes that he was called upon to be a part of a roast for his dear friend, Bob Saget. Now, most of you know Bob Saget from Full House Days, another 90s TV star, or maybe America's Funniest Videos. Maybe you don't know that Bob Saget was actually a pretty raunchy uh, comic. He was not the kind of comic I would let my kids listen to. And he, there was a big public roast on Comedy Central, and Norm was asked to be a part of this public roast. And right before it happened, Norm calls Bob and says, hey, you're my friend. First of all, I hate the whole idea of roasts. And secondly, I especially hate the idea of a public roast on Comedy Central. And thirdly, I hate the idea of roasting my friend. But I love you, and so I'm going to do it. So Norm shows up, and he does the most subversive thing the most, maybe one of the most legendary things a comic could do. For 20 minutes, he stands on the biggest stage of roasting. He stands in front of his comic peers where one is trying to outdo one another in being mean and uh, being shocking. And Norm stands up and does 20 minutes worth of terrible dad jokes. He doesn't curse. In fact, he has an old book from the 1940s that a family member gave him. And he, for 20 minutes, does the most subversive thing a comic can do. It does not get a laugh. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. That is the scene of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. 
There were such high hopes for the Messiah to come into his kingdom. Here he is, finally. Jesus, after all this nonsense about dying, is finally stepping into this messianic symbolism and imagery. The image the disciples have of what Jesus should be, he's finally mapping onto that. He's sitting on a colt and he's riding into Jerusalem and as he does it, the people are participating and they're throwing down their cloaks, they're throwing down the palm branches, they're saying, this is the guy. And Jesus comes into town and what does he do? What are their expectations? Not only do they have Davidic expectations, they have Maccabean expectations. Now, in your Bible, the words triumphal entry are probably over the heading of this section. I'd like to propose to you that what Jesus is doing is an anti-triumphal entry. Jesus is a humble, non-anxious, radically subversive revolutionary. Mark's gospel centers around uh, activity in and around the Jerusalem temple, but the temple was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth overlap, the place where grace and forgiveness and freedom for sin and liberation of captives is, is supposed to happen, where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are supposed to come together to worship Yahweh, a place of joy and community. But down through the years, it has become not that. Instead, this Jewish institution has become God's object of judgment because it has turned into a site of oppression and exploitation. From this point in the narrative, Mark begins to portray Jesus as more clearly as the new temple. He himself is that temple, the place where God is encountered. The force of Jesus' strikingly anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem can be seen when contrasted with Simon's entry into the city in 1 Maccabees. Anybody grow up in a Catholic church, Catholic background? Okay, a couple of you. This book of the Bible is in the Catholic uh, canon, but not in the Protestant. Um, and so we Protestants don't necessarily see this as divine, but, but it's also not bad. It's okay for your ears to hear verses from 1 Maccabees. So I'm going to read just a couple of them to you. I want you to see if you can see how this would have captured the imagination. Now, just a little bit of background. In 167 BC, a guy by the name of Mattathias uh, was a local priest uh, in a town northwest of Jerusalem. He initiated a rebellion against Syria, who was the dominating power in that time. And he initiated this rebellion by killing one of Antiochus Epiphanes' representatives. The, re the rebellion itself was led by Mattathias' oldest son, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus just means the hammer. So he was Maccabeus, a.k.a. the hammer. So as you're growing up as a kid they, uh, in Jerusalem, you might have, instead of be, uh, acting like LeBron James or Steph Curry, you might have enacted uh, the, the Maccabean re revolt. You might have, uh, or instead of Spider-Man or any of the uh, Marvel uh, 
superheroes, you might have been Maccabeus, the hammer. But after he died, his brother Simon took over. And under Simon, uh, Judea gained political independence that they had hoped for. And uh, he later purified the Jerusalem temple from its pollution by foreigners. And the event commemorated in the Jewish celebration of, anybody know? Anybody know? Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah comes from. So here it is. 1 Maccabees 13. Those who were in the citadel at Jerusalem were prevented from going in and out to buy and sell in the country. So they were very hungry, and many of them perished from the famine. So they cried out to Simon, the revolutionary. They called upon their new royal king to make peace with them, and so he did. He expelled them from there and cleansed the citadel from its pollutions. And on the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered, in, entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Jerusalem. Simon decreed that every year they should celebrate this day with Rejoicing, and that's where Hanukkah comes from. So the heroic deeds of Simon and his crew in 1 Maccabees shaped the first century imagination of the Jewish people. And the people, as the people were once again under foreign domination, not by the Syrians now, but by the Romans. What do these disciples want? They want Jesus to come into his kingdom. They want Jesus to restore Jerusalem. Even after the resurrection, what do they ask him in the book of Acts? Will you at this time restore Israel? Will you at this time restore the nation? But Jesus doesn't do what they think he's going to do. He does so much more. What happens at the end of this narrative? What happens? It's this great anti-climax. He walks into the temple and instead of holding forth, instead of revving the people up, what does he do? He looks around and he goes home. What must the disciples have thought? The disciples want to be made into the image of their rabbi. And they finally see the image of their rabbi on the back of a donkey. They see the crowds come and shouting Hosanna before and behind. But he doesn't do what they want him to do. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes the path of humility. Jesus is a non-anxious presence. But make no mistake about it. When Jesus stood in that temple, the temple that his spiritual enemies had found dominion, he was saying, I really am king. I'm king over the injustice. I'm king over the progress narratives. I'm king over your oppressors. And I'm king over your desire for consumption. 
Philippians chapter 2 tells us the kind of king that we have. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, because Jesus was the non-anxious, humble revolutionary, God has exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, not just in Rome, not just in the temple, every knee, not just in the first century, but in every century, in all of time. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. A little bit later, John caught a glimpse of our humble revolutionary leader as a glorified cosmic king. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, let it be so. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Not long after, this episode. This same king returned to the Mount of Olives and took the greatest posture of a non-anxious, humble revolutionary. He bowed on his face before God and said, not my will, but yours be done. People who took the name of Jesus, people who became Christians, followers of Jesus, after Jesus ascended to heaven, they embodied this way of life. And you and I are invited to do the same. Do you know that every time you lay aside your glory, every time you take a back seat, you humble yourself in service of others in the name of Jesus, you're pushing back darkness. Every time you make an act of generosity, you're declaring to spiritual forces in heavenly places that Jesus is king. When you choose to keep no record of wrong, even to your spouse, you're participating in revolution. When you choose to repay evil with good, you're part of a revolution. You're telling the spiritual forces that Jesus is king. A few days ago, I was camping out at Refugio. Site 22. I believe that God gave me that little site as a place of worship, kind of my first step into this area. 
That little piece of land is sacred to me now. One night I came back from hanging out, all kinds of meetings, came back from a dinner with a family from this church. I came back to my site, site 22. And someone was there. Someone had parked their big RV there. I knew it was spiritual. I shined my light on their little, their little, they had a little tag up in the window, and I thought, man, maybe they just, maybe they just uh, are in the wrong space. I'll just park in their space. Sure enough, they were squatting. They weren't supposed to be there. And so I knocked on their door and just humbly said, hey, guys, I, I think you got the wrong space. This is, this is my space. Would you mind? The lady came out, and she looked at me, and she saw my vehicle situation, and she said, you got to be kidding me. And then she snapped, and she started cursing at me. Her voice got louder, and she started cursing and cursing and cursing at me. She got in her RV, and she did move it. But I tell you what, it was heavy. I could tell I was confronting something in the spirit world. So I said, oh, well, I went to sleep. The next morning, I built a fire, and there she is. She just, the, her RV's just right there across the way. And I knew that some kind of confrontation was coming. And I just said, Lord Jesus, in Matthew, you told me to bless those who curse me. And boy, did she curse me. So boy, am I going to bless her. So I blessed her. You said for me to pray for those who spitefully use me. She didn't use me, but there was some spite involved. So Lord, I pray, whatever's going on with her, would you alleviate her burdens? Would you move into this space? And I felt something well up within me, an authority. And I began to say, Jesus, you are Lord over Site 22. Jesus, you are Lord over Refugio State Beach. Jesus, you are Lord over Santa Barbara. Jesus, you are Lord over Reality Santa Barbara and every family, everyone watching online, every person who's a part of this family. You are Lord. And Lord, if there's anything demonic going on with this lady, would you just allow these spirits to hear me right now? In the name of Jesus, I take authority over whatever's going on right here. You're trespassing. Jesus is Lord over this space. Leave. I said that. I promise you. Her door burst open. Her countenance was completely changed. She walked in my direction and she said, Sir, I owe you an apology. She said, I was a bleep to you last night. She said, would you forgive me? I said, I understand, ma'am. It's, it's late at night. I totally understand. Can I tell you, every time you choose to push back the darkness, every time you choose to pray for those who hurt you, Every time you choose to bless those who curse you, you're participating in a kind of revolution.
This is our last gathering of 2022, and I can think of no better way to finish our time together in 2022 than by taking on the posture of our revolutionary king. I'm gonna invite you. In fact, I'm gonna invite Joseph and the team to go ahead and come on up and lead us in worship. Carpet and communion are part of our church family. They're symbols of our surrender and our dependence upon God. From the earliest days of reality, I got to hear it from the man himself. This is who we are. I'd like to invite you, if you're comfortable, right there at your seat, to take a posture of kneeling in worship in this first song, or come forward to carpet time, and would you just, along with me, dedicate this year to Jesus? All of your anxieties, all of your frustrations, all of your hopes, all of your anticipation, give it to Jesus. Let's worship Jesus together. And as we prepare, as we do, I want to prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, it has been my desire that you be seen. Lord, in the weakness of my speech, I prepare, I, I, I pray that you have... Uh, connected with the hearts of people. I pray that you have, I thank you that you have connected with my heart in, in preparation for this, that you have reminded me that you are king. That participating in your kingdom is not a heavy thing. Your burden is light. You just ask us to take simple steps. And so Lord, at the end of 2021, and as we turn our gaze toward your faithfulness in 2022. I just pray for every person, every person watching online, and I ask that you would meet us right where we are as we bow our hearts before you. In Jesus' name, let's worship.